I'm Andrew Faust. This is Permaculture Perspectives. And today on this episode, you're going to hear a unique format we've decided to move into with David Harper, my dear friend and colleague who I'm starting the Permaculture Living Lands Trust with, where we interview Lisa Fernandez, a colleague who has been involved in high-level communications and ethical social justice work, started the Resilience Hub in Maine, and Lisa Fernandez is a real pleasure to talk with. You'll hear here a wordsmith of permaculture and inclusive language thinking and design. We will also have links to the many organizations you'll hear Lisa recommending throughout this interview. And you'll also hear early on a little plug I have to give here for the fact that she recognizes us as touching in with teachers who are still active in teaching permaculture design certification. Don't miss our next one coming up September 23rd, fully online, all sessions recorded so that you have them as an archive for your ongoing evolution in permaculture design. Andrew Faust, Permaculture New York. Enjoy this episode and give us feedback about the process and communication of a dual host interview. Thank you. This is Andrew Faust here with Permaculture Perspectives and really honored to have Lisa Fernandez here with me today to share her perspectives, her thinking about experience with the multifaceted permutations of permaculture. And David Harper, my dear friend and colleague is going to be with us today for a conversation and exploring some of the ways to bring food and culture and more of the real down-to-earth and grassroots work that can be happening around bringing permaculture into more of the public sphere. So yeah, Lisa, really just such an honor to to have you here. I've I've always admired your work and especially your your organizational skills, your ability to help places like PAN and the project you were working with, with the food solutions. And you do so much work that I also am interested to learn about, but the, the projects that I know of that you've been involved with are some, some really, to me, important, uh, groundbreaking uh, and super valuable as a, as a permaculture educator to show what, what does it look like to begin to really bring this design thinking into areas of our culture and of our society where it really needs to be emerging rather than kind of keeping it as, in a sense, keeping it this hidden gem that it seems to often kind of be that people right. sometimes discover and sometimes not. So, so Lisa, I'd lo- love to and as I mentioned, you know, as we were getting started, love to hear about your your journey to permaculture. I always love for our listeners to hear our guests kind of give a little of that perspective of what brought you to to aligning with the permaculture term and and some of your your early history in that, if you would. Yeah, I, w- I would be happy Thank to you. and glad to be here with you. It's been a little while since we spoke, but always great to touch in. Uh, with those who are still teaching and and doing the great work all around the region. So um, I would say I came to permaculture 
1992, actually, <laughs> and uh, had a chance to do some traveling and uh, met some people who introduced the concept to me, and it really intrigued me. And when I got back home, I was heading out to the west coast of, of the U.S., and uh, spent four years in Olympia, Washington. And that's where I did my first permaculture design weekend workshop. Um, I think it was with Larry Santoyo, actually. Mm -hmm. I just came across my notebook from 31 years ago, which is shocking. But here you are. Larry's going to be with us on Friday. Actually. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. 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 And, and before I took that workshop, I think I got the uh, the introduction to permaculture, you know, that sort of workbook size book from Bill Mollison's um, publishing house. And just the, you know, as you've heard many times from people around the world, just the graphical presentations of the concepts really captured my imagination and were really compelling and inspiring and made so much sense. And that started me on a self learning journey, I would say, after that. And I've always been a gardener, grew up in a household where we grew food as a family, regaled with stories of my grandparents and great-grandparents coming to this place as immigrants. And, you know, the first thing they did, even in the middle of the city, would be to find a way to grow some food or keep pigeons on the roof or fertilizer and sometimes meat. Um, so just really part of the cultural story is if you're able to, you know, takes responsibility for growing some food or obtaining food or foraging for food wherever you are in the world. Now, I know that's complicated as, you know, colonizers on stolen land, we have to grapple with those issues really substantively. And, uh, you know, in my evolution as a permaculturist, as an ecological designer, as a gardener, forager, orchardist, and then I would say social permaculturist as well, and we'll come to some of those topics in a minute. Um, I, I feel like it's been a journey of discovery and permaculture has been the portal that's allowed me to do a lot of that discovery and not just on my own and with my family, but in community. And, um, some of the things you alluded to earlier, Andrew, I think attest to that because it became apparent pretty quickly that the whole bootstrapism and rugged individual sort of approach and narrative, the, the idea of self-sufficiency really undermines what's at the heart of being a human as a communitarian species. We, we evolved as a species in community. There's no such thing as going it alone. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like, how do we use these, these design principles, these ways of thinking to go from me to we, which is possibly one of the most radical things you can do in a country or in a place like America that wants to reduce you to the, the individual and keep you separated from each other. So there's a lot to unpack there, uh, but I, I do feel like, uh, you know, joining with others across the Northeast region and the Permaculture Association and helping to organize two big regional convergences, uh, getting the Resilience Hub off the ground here in Maine in 2005, and then partnering with many other organizations in a spirit of we're all in this together, or at least trying to model that as much as possible, uh, has really taught me a lot about 
what you can do with permaculture beyond your own backyard or front stoop or whatever. Yeah, that's some really important themes and, and messages there that you're bringing. Yeah, so so true that the, the age of the rugged individualist path, it's, it, it, was it ever desirable? is what I, mm. you know, like, yeah and, I think, and who, who does it benefit to have us believing that yeah i think it has a certain <laughs> rhetorical convenience in some way like it fits yeah. some preconceived mythos of the society that are out there so it sort of feels like oh it's sort of like when when the when, just as a quick aside it's for me it's like when the when the democrats start spending a lot of time talking about patriotism i'm always like oh right yeah, yeah, no, it's it's slippery, <laughs> like, slippery stuff, no doubt. Convenient. Yeah. yeah. One question that comes up for yeah. me, Lisa, and it's really glad, I'm very glad to meet you. And, you know, from what I know of your work uh, in New England, it just feels like you've been on that, that really working edge between um, food system work, but also really how we use land and how, mm -hmm. how we, get to use land and, and how we steward that land as responsible human beings. So, mm. you know, with our work, Andrew and I and Lisa coming together around the Permaculture Living Lands Trust, part of that grew out of this realization that it's not enough to just save farmland. I mean, I could spend the rest of my career like I did for the last 30 years, saving thousands of acres of farmland and raising money to do it. And that's mm. a good thing. It's an important thing, but you probably know as well as anyone that when we look out at the landscape around us and we look at farmland, it's not really, you just go out there and harvest that food and put it on your table. I mean, mu much of what we see in much of the country is producing food for animals, uh, stock for biofuels, et cetera, oil seeds. So, so the thought of relocalizing our food systems or because we believe they were localized at one point, they had to be. Um, I, I'm curious to hear your take on the land tenure piece, the, the whole idea of how we have rights to land, how we have control and use of land, and how is that playing out in your world in terms of getting us closer to being able to steward a whole food system for a whole community without having it all be based on private property, debt, and, you know, debt financing, basically? Yeah, that's a great question, David. And I feel like I would step back just for one second before directly answering it, because I feel like the framing on this is really big. Like, it's taken us several centuries to get into the pickle we're in. Mm -hmm. And all of those things you mentioned, including the concept of land ownership, is just that. It's a social construct. Mm -hmm. uh, that was imposed on this landscape. Yeah. Now, it's powerful. The economic systems that we live under, grudgingly participate in, try not to participate in, try to create alternatives to um, the political systems, etc. Um, damn, they're powerful. They are yeah. powerful. Uh, and so I want to start with a note of... I don't know if compassion is the right word, but like some grace for the, those of us, for, for people in the world who 
are constantly getting crushed by it and or trying to get out from under it because this is not easy for anyone. And and we are trying to undo the work of generations of powerful people. And we're at this interesting inflection point. I'll get a little philosophical before I get specific, but I, I feel like as a student of history with a passion for like the broad arc of history and how the hell did we get here? I feel like we're at, we're at an inflection point. And, and that point could be decades long or maybe even a century or two long, but it's an inflection point like in the history of our species and, and this planet. And by that, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of forces have converged to bring us to this moment. And it's very, very dangerous moment. It's, mm -hmm. it's, we already are seeing the crushing damage that's been happening. And it's still full of the potential of what humans can do and the beauty of what humans embedded within the ecosystems that their very lives depend on can do. And so will I see this ship turn around in my lifetime? Probably not. In small ways, though, that work has already started. In some bigger ways, that work has already started. So I don't want the story to be, it's horrible, and this is the most horrible moment ever. I want the story to be, this is, this is the moment, this is the inflection point in which we planted the seeds for absolutely thinking about and doing things so differently. And it's it's gonna be a combination of rediscovering the traditional wisdom, as well as combining that with things that have to be entirely new and innovative at this point. Mm -hmm. So so I feel like I, I wanna acknowledge that we're in this crazy moment yeah. that has so much amazing potential for joy and magic and music and art and love while we are seeing the absolute concentration of power and wealth in the fewest possible hands mm -hmm. by design. So, so that's complicated just to even hold in your heart without holding, you know, without becoming, you know, a lot of people are, are really affected by this. And I completely understand and have loads of compassion for how we work together as community members to get through these times. So specifically on the land piece, uh, I'm, it calls to mind for me the fact that there are multiple theories of change on this point. Uh, I probably gravitate to some more than others, and you may gravitate to others, but I don't want to get engaged in tactical sectarianism to say my way is better than your way because we need all the ways. Mm -hmm. And then I also, and I'll mention a particular conceptual model of theory of change that has helped me with this a lot, and it's it's from... Um, a group called uh, Spirit in Action. And if if you were to look up Spirit in Action Theory of Transformation, there's a, a pretty handy graphic and it, it, it shares some conceptual ways of making change because some of us are like, oh, we've got to change it from within. We can reform the way we do land and land tenure. And others are like, no, it's flawed DNA from the beginning. We have to blow the thing up and start over from scratch. You know, that, And there's others, there's other ways. So I wanna acknowledge that all those ways are important and creating models of how it could be, should be, is already becoming, I feel like is what you all are working on. You're actually out there in the Bill Mollison sense of like future scouting. You're, you're saying, what does this future look like and how do we start it now? Yeah. 
Like we're going to travel out to that future point in time and then reverse engineer what's necessary for new ways of doing land tenure. Right. And that's hard. <laughs> that's hard. And it's so important. It's so critically important. Um, so, so I think that that's great. Now, some people might see it as a policy issue, uh, just, you know, change your purchasing habits issue, uh, you know, culture change issue, change the story, use art, like all the ways are needed. I feel like there's, there's many ways to the top of this mountain and, and we need all of those. So that's like a general sense of it. Um, if you want, you know, we can also talk about some of my recent experience with things like the Food Solutions New England Network, um, the New England Feeding New England offshoot of that, which just published their very specific 30 by 30. How is New England going to feed uh, its population with 30% of food produced in region by 2030, which is right around the corner. Right. So there's other other pieces to it that are specific approaches, but... I just wanted to frame that up um, yeah. because you guys are doing a certain approach. That's cool. So much of what we talk about that ties back to your work is about what does it look like to have a land mass, a, a land base that is available for food production in a given bioregion. And, mm -hmm. and it's not always about the best farmland. It's not always about taking a cornfield and turning it into 10 different kinds of vegetables. It's, yeah. It's looking at all the land and all of its capacity, but also from an ecological sense, instead of farmland replacing ecosystems, it's blending farmlands with ecosystems. And it sounds like you're on that similar path as well. So yeah. when we look at what, yeah. what land is needed, it's like, well, what lens do you look through and how do we find mm -hmm. an ecological lens to look through when it comes to land use for food production? So, yeah, we're really excited about the work you've done and are continuing mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. and, and just one little piece I'd pick out of there, which I think you were alluding to as well, is the fact that, you know, much of what we do is earth repair. It's it's mm -hmm. restorative earth justice mm -hmm. um, in a sense. So uh, re-embedding in relationship to place, you know, it, just because your family member gets ill you don't discount their value um, just because a piece of land has been abused doesn't mean it isn't worthy of our care and healing work. So um, mm. that's, that's part of the process. And that has technical, spiritual, logistical, financial implications. So. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, we'd love to hear some of where you were wanting to go with that segue into the feeding New England food solutions yeah. retrospective for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Uh, and I will say that my years working with the Food Solutions New England Network were incredibly rewarding. Um, just was there right through the near the end of last year. And that network really got going um, around 2010 realizing that, you know, again, states, state boundaries are an arbit arbitrary construct, political boundaries are, are an arbitrary construct, but they have real impact, particularly when it comes to policies and choices for how we use land, how we produce food, how we care for the people within our boundaries, etc. So 
Um, one of the early efforts of that network of the six New England states coming together, and it took two or three years, was publishing a really solid, I think, first go at what a regional food system, you know, at a high level anyway, needs to take into account. Uh, and, and, and what's even possible looking at acreage in production, what acreage would be needed to meet certain dietary needs given population projections and, you know, modeling like that can be like throwing darts on the best of days, but people had a go at trying to do it. Um, and there were annual gatherings where different groups could have time to work on that collaboratively. Uh, over the years, there was a, a realization that it was an excellent foundation. It was a vision. It wasn't a prescription. It wasn't saying this is how you will do it. It was saying, here are some general directional guidelines for what's possible. Now, each of you in your states, in your sectors, in land conservation, in fisheries, in forestry, in hunger, in food security issues, whatever, like figure out what's your role within that to help us collectively get to more regional, sustainable and resilient food system that, that works for everybody. Hmm. Um, there also was an attempt to marry that with some core values like equity, justice, democracy, uh, dignity for all and trust building relationships. And, and that was important for me too, because I feel like you can have all the technical solutions in the world. We have all the technical solutions in the world, but without the values base, the values lens for how we do that work together, you're still going to fail essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so the, the logistics and the goals combined with a good set of shared values like not prescriptive, not saying this is how you must act, but like centering democracy and justice, et cetera. Like those two things together were, were great poles to move forward. Um, the, the New England Food Vision is still available for people to look at. It's now nine years old. And from that, uh, the six individual New England state food system planning entities banded together, got some funding, and they just published New England Feeding New England, um, which did deep analysis on where are we now and what can we do by 2030. Mm. Um, does it does it address the justice and equity? Like, there's a lot in there that people wanted it to do more of, but given the resources that were available, it's a pretty amazing assessment of where we are today as a region and other regions around the country. And, and even at the federal level are looking to it as an example for how we can think about regional food system planning. Hmm. Yeah, there's no other study of it that I've come across that's got that kind of comprehensive scope or warp to the woof as they say i mean really yeah um, yeah very very impressive even some what you were referring to as the throwing darts part of it is is part of what impressed me the most in many senses as a as a designer was the ambition to kind of just go for it I mean, yeah let's throw some numbers out there let's try to stay within the 70 percent wildland parameter mm -hmm. we'll talk about what would it look like and and I often, when I when I talk about the study, I really appreciated the the omnivores delight framing yes. of the middle the middle path. Yeah, 
it's it's very uh, yeah there's to me it my question would be do you think are they does it end up in a sense being a study for a study's sake or does it feel like it's can it can it be used is is the intention of it is it likely to move into some some real implementation uh that can then follow this this what what is a absolutely impressive analysis yeah that's a great question um there's a couple things working in favor of it actually having some legs and getting a chance at changing policy and those two things in favor are the fact that this network of people who are putting this stuff out now have been working together and building trust and building momentum for you know almost 15 years Mm. that's important like if a bunch of people come together in a region of states and they don't even know each other and they jump in the deep end of the pool together and try to make a massive thing happen that's it that's an entirely different proposition so so i think that's one positive thing Mm -hmm. the second thing that's working in favor of implementation is not necessarily positive but it's motivating which is the sheer breathtaking amount of climate uncertainty and damage that continues to befall New England that that is affecting farmers that is affecting fishermen um you know the the sort of greedflation that we saw that concentration of wealth and power that accelerated during the pandemic uh is changing the framing it's changing the Overton window on how people are even talking about Who's even to blame here? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that all humans suck. It's that some humans do suck mm-hmm. and they <laughs> and they act like it. Do you know what I mean? So I think what's happening in the world is bringing the conversation to a point of a higher likelihood of action, at least here in the state and regional sense of it in New England. Like, And there are relationships with the state commissioners of agriculture or fisheries or health and human services or you know the the agencies that are in charge of land access and land conservation there there's also been amazing work building bridges with uh the BIPOC community and with indigenous communities so much more necessary like barely scratching the surface of what needs to be done but at least those conversations and those relationships are starting. Whereas, you know, if you asked me some of this 15 years ago, there would have been nothing or very little, very little. Yeah. You know, as you're speaking, Lisa, I'm thinking one of the other topics that comes up a lot for us, again, through the Permaculture Land Trust lens is Mm -hmm. the issue of really supply chains and value chains around uh, meeting human needs. And so yeah. when it comes to looking at a regional food shed analysis, for example, if we can use the term food shed for people to think that way, um, you know, we often find ourselves frustrated, I think, with this um, reverence and and sort of focus on private, small family business or larger corporate business as being the cornerstones of the supply chain or the value chain. When we really step back and ask, well, what does the value chain and supply chain need to be truly a regional food shed or bioregional food shed? Mm -hmm. We often come back to thoughts like a a cooperative, you know, a a 
for-profit business that has multiple owners that share risk, that share reward, mm-hmm. and that, that vote together on how to do production, how to do processing, how to do distribution, how to do marketing. And so I'm just wondering if that, not that there's one model that works best, but are you seeing more of a sort of a diversity model for food sheds, supply chains, or are you still seeing sort of these cornerstones that have to be there? Yeah, no, this is another place where I feel like there's a lot of good work happening. And, you know, the, 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 the portion of our food system that is, um, you know, managed in a cooperative or democratic way or in a commons is, is minute compared to the corporate consolidation that we're seeing in our food system, which has only gotten worse. So that's kind of something working against us. It's not insurmountable. It's just going to take a while to to turn that around. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like the work of the Cooperative Development Institute, the Democracy at Work Network, um, you know, there's so much inspiration for cooperative organizing. I'm appreciating unionization that's happening. Um, All of this is striking fear in the hearts of you know, late stage capitalists at this point, and I can understand why. Um, and it, and also, I would come back to the core wisdom that we get from people who are who understand the history of the commons and humans as commoning species. Um, and you know, David Bollier is right in our neck of the woods, writing about the commons and helping to revivify that conversation about what does it mean to be commoning, whether it's on land in a business. Uh, in the digital realm, uh, in the arts world. So, you know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for cooperative ways of organizing to meet the needs of healthy communities and healthy people. So um, we've come a long way from it, particularly in America. Um, and, I, you know, I don't want to say that in a way that that paints everyone with the same brush because, many new Americans and people that are new to this part of the world bring their cultures with them, which are still extremely community oriented and focused on commoning and the common good of, of that community. Um, so, so yeah, so it's, it's complicated. It's not a homogenous situation here, but I, I would be absolutely in support and many funders and even investors are starting to see that one of the most important antidotes to corporate consolidation is democratization and turning to cooperative models of management and ownership and tenure. So I, I would be 100% in support of that. And there are more and more sort of structures and supports to, to make that happen, part of the, the great turning or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And Lisa, I'm just going to mention for our listeners that I'll put in the notes to this session links to the organizations you're mentioning. Fantastic. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Well, what's new for you? I mean, I, it sounds like you've been going through some some professional uh, growth and, and sort of new stages of your career path. So tell us some more about that. Yeah, yeah. I am... Um... I still grow a lot of food myself. My family and I uh, are on a a small one third. It's now one half acre. We expanded a little bit in in Southern Maine. So uh, 
Andrew will know from some of my past conversations with him that we've really converted that to just complete food production and, um, you know, involve this old house in what does it look like to convert old housing stock into something that can, you know, be a completely different, resilient, low cost and secure, safe, happy, healthy lifestyle. Um, so that continues. That's a, that's a project. Um, we also have some family ties to the maritime region of Canada and are starting to think about um, some land we have there that would be uh, on Cape Breton Island or Unamagi in the Mi'kmaq territory. And uh, it's all forested and it has been, you know, much in need of earth repair for some time. That's been a resource extraction colony for several hundred years, like much of North America. And what does it mean to uh, steward that and, and, and bring back what, you know, what is the Wabanaki forest, the Acadian forest look like brought back into health after decades and centuries of high grading and borealization. So we're doing a lot more around forestry and understanding forestry. Uh, and thinking about what what that might look like for the future of our family and the folks in our sort of kinship circle. So I'm I see myself connected to that place and to this place through both historic family ties and ancestors, as well as uh, potential future settlements. So that's something that's happening happening in my personal life. Um, I should say that. With starting with Food Solutions New England, I was able to focus really heavily on the aspect of culture change that's related to communications and narrative and story. Mm-hmm. That is something that I'm really passionate about and professionally will again probably become part of what I do for work. I'm on a little mini sabbatical right now to do some traveling and family stuff. Um, but I feel like I mean, you both know this, that a lot of the folks that we would like to engage with are are in crisis or or at least suffering from crisis fatigue. You know, the world is, is really heavy in a lot of ways for those of us who are seeing what we're seeing. And so uh, maybe in the spirit of Adrian Marie Brown and the climate fiction community and the climate arts community, I think those of us who are able, who have the the time, the resources, the wherewithal to use our skills to paint the most compelling and beautiful picture of the future we need, mm-hmm. like we need to be doing that because yeah. things are going to continue to get difficult. They already are brutally difficult for many people and non-human beings. And like what is worth stewarding through to the other side Mm -hmm. and how do we see what that looks like with joy with passion with excitement and for those of us of an age like knowing we're not going to see it fully come to fruition but yet that's still critically important for us so that so what stories do we tell about the future that's coming Mm -hmm. what fiction do we write what movies do we make what paintings do we make um what plays do we put on? Like, what what is what is the more compelling story 
that is not lying. It's not like toxic positivism because that can happen for some people that are maybe a little too to the love and light side of things. But, but it's like legitimately, this is hard, but we can do this and it's going to be amazing on the other side if we have the ability to do it now is that 50 years or 500 years from now i don't know but like my ancestors did what they did and i'm sitting here today and so i have a duty to do everything i can with whatever whatever skills and gifts i have to try to tell that story and mobilize what's possible Mm -hmm. um without getting a little too out there like that's the framing i'm bringing to my professional work. It's like, how do we really do narrative and communications and story? We're not refuting all of the things we know are out there as misinformation because then we're just reinforcing those people's narratives. We're telling the better story, the better narrative and getting, and, and like really gaining momentum in that way. So cool. And it's a human story, not a machine story. I mean, it's human. Yeah. And an earth story, for sure. Yeah, That's right, because we're all as one. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, it, that really resonates with me, too. That's very much where I've been. I was just speaking to a class for a colleague up at the community college on eco-literacy, and I was saying a similar message to the students in the class, that we lack articulate visions of... Uh, better alternative that people can get excited about and are and can get enthusiastic about like it's it's very easy to roll out dystopic sci-fi post-collapse storylines and they just feed into a sense of hopelessness and consumerism Mm -hmm. but to Mm -hmm. actually hold forth something that isn't hokey and contrived but is like a true vision um and it also reminds me how you know as somebody we've all been pretty close to the world of permaculture it's one of the things that i find so powerful about the foundation has always been that we need to articulate a vision what is our vision and it's like in that work that is the great work so to speak in the thomas berry term Mm -hmm. is that what is our vision what's what's our self vision what's our what's our collective vision um and I also resonate with, I've been thinking, you know, I, I love reading. And I recently when I when I was ill with COVID, started digging into Dostoevsky, the idiot, and read some Chekhov and just started once again, as I always do when I read great writers like that, to realize, oh, wow, I, I see why these authors are so powerful because you, you identify with the characters, they transport you into a landscape, and the ability uh-huh. for fiction to do that is just such a powerful tool that that we need to continue to, to I think tap into as as um, creatives. So yeah. I really appreciate that. So, Absolutely, so- because you know if there's one resource we have that is that is bottomless, it's human creativity. Mm-hmm. Amen. You know, and yeah. like even the grist. If you, if you want to share a resource with your audience around mm-hmm. the Grist Network, uh, mm-hmm. the Grist publication, they they do a fantastic Dude. annual set of climate fiction stories. Oh, they yeah. just put out their most recent round. So good. It's a form of They're, activism. The right. Grist is also, I think, kind of broke this story on that Palestine-Ohio derailment. I think so, they may have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
because I, I remember they were one of the first places to carry that. Yep. Yep. It's really, you know, so much of what's, them. so much right. of what rings true with what you're sharing, Lisa, I think is, it does seem to be about power dynamics and about, you know, how do we take power in our own hands, you know, again, as we've done throughout history, but um, in this current form, um, the the quote that I've come across recently that really resonates for me is from Alice Waters. You may have seen it. It's the most common way people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any, which I love. I mean, she's because we all have power. So as soon as we yeah. feel like we don't, then we start giving it away. And mm-hmm. and any of us who work with younger generations and university, college age, uh, young adults, that's that's a real concern that that people are mm-hmm. being distracted from their own power. And so um, mm-hmm. just would love to hear any anything you you've come across in in terms of how how to remedy that and how to heal that. Uh, yeah ability to to hold on to our power especially yeah. at age yeah that's that's a really that's a really big question and i do have thoughts about it um and it's it, and i'm still learning and evolving of course i you know i'll be doing that till i get compost in the backyard hopefully but um i I want to acknowledge that a lot of people feel powerless because they've been, because power has actively been stolen from them Mm. by other people on purpose. Mm. So, so on the one hand, I am in agreement that as, you know, a, a human being, you have power and agency in the world and in full honesty, again, as a student of history and of current events, we all know uh, there are forces at work in the world designed to crush that power, crush that light within you mm-hmm. for a reason, for the benefit of a very small number of people. Mm-hmm. Um, whether, you know, and that goes all the way back to, you know, the genocide of indigenous people um the enslavement of people you know all the things that's that and and you could even say um different aspects of complex late stage capitalism are designed to do the same thing mm-hmm. so 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 i want to just not shy away from the fact that that is real that is mm-hmm. real um and so yes we want to be creating environments and support systems for all people to fully realize and live into the power that is inherent to them. Everyone has that value, has that power, that spark within them, that potential for it to be expressed and to be active in the world. I I do believe that, Um, that's Mm -hmm. for sure. I also believe that this brings us again back to community. there's something that I don't know if we've talked about this before, Andrew, and, and I'm not sure the origin of the concept. Um, so I would I would give a citation if I had it in my mind, but I don't right now. But it's this idea of like the risk support ratio. And what I mean by this is you have a young person or maybe 
a worker in a company where they're not being treated very well or a farmhand somewhere or um, a person in uh, experiencing abuse in a relationship or whatever. They have that spark of power and potential within them for whatever reason it's being squashed, oppressed. Maybe they've never learned about how to use it, can't access it. They would have to make some changes, take some risks to access and leverage that power to make change even in their own life, let alone in their family or their community. The ability to take risk for a lot of humans uh, has to be taken into account relative to how much supports are available to them to take that risk. Not everyone can. Not everyone has the same supports. Like, I grew up in a particular way where I was privileged in some ways and not in others, but yet I can take certain kinds of risks because I have my personal resilience practices. I have a family that supports me uh, emotionally and otherwise, logistically. I have friends that love me and have my back. I've got ancestors that I'm in relationship with. So like I have, in the same way you think of permaculture zones of design, Mm -hmm. there are zones of support in your life going all the way out maybe to if you live in a place where the government has really good support systems where public funds are being used for public good so well said do you know what i mean so so i want to uh give a lot of grace and acknowledge the fact that the power within us to fully put you know to fully live into that potential of who we are as human beings um can 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 express itself in, in in relation to the supports we have in our lives so creating community, creating supports, whether it's health, nutrition, economic, housing, whatever those are, are the number one ways for humans to fully achieve their potential and power as human beings, to, as individuals. And this is me philosophizing, but this is what I really believe. And I think even good design has to start with this concept yeah. of care within a community connected setting. Yes, for sure. Yeah, thank you. Powerful, really, really great insights, Lisa. Yeah, so I, I'm trying to be more articulate. It's like I haven't had That's a chance to articulate. say this out loud very much, though. So. <laughs> that was, yeah, really clear and powerful and so on point. Uh, it's so often the part, when we often, when we talk about power, there's sort of like this personal power rhetoric. Mm. It seems to be underneath it sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think that that's uh, a really important sort of redirecting of our attention. Yeah. To where does our power reside? So yeah. To speak. And uh, and putting it putting in into our community and into our context is mm-hmm. so important because it's that giving back and supporting the greater the greater whole is so critical to our own well being and it's it's this. It's almost like a semantic challenge that we have in our Western thinking to keep finding ways to deconstruct this tendency to move towards language and perception that facilitates an isolationism of sorts. That's exactly Mm -hmm. right. And so I would say power lives in relationships. Mm -hmm. Honestly, Mm -hmm. like like the art of permaculture design, I've heard, you know, it's defined a million ways, but the art of designing relationships between elements in a landscape um, to create harmonious ecosystems 
And I would argue the same thing is true in the human realm, you know? Yeah. We also talk about building community wealth and, and doing that in ways that don't fit the normal GDP model of community wealth. So it's really, mm. you know, building soil health, building water quality and quantity, you know, clean, plentiful water. Um, and so learning more about your work with forest farming, I think is part yeah. of your venture and in, in in your Canadian world. Um, just wondering about that, because when we think about that future landscape, as you kind of highlighted, you know, what is the future scouting that we're doing? It is about abundance at a landscape scale that is accessible to everyone. And that is like a garden of Eden that is food everywhere, but also ecological health everywhere. And uh -huh. so that to us, I think more and more feels like community wealth, not whether you have a strong tax base or right. the big box stores in the community or, you know, rich people coming in and buying up homes, that that's not community wealth. That's still extractive. And just wondered if you've been dealing with any of that in your work and could maybe speak to some of that wealth building. Yeah, no, that's a great that's a great one, because I feel like the word wealth is just so loaded, even though I know we want to redefine what we mean by wealth. And, and I would be right there with you in the ways you're describing it. I'm a little nervous that the word might be too far gone uh, yeah, <laughs> or it's yeah. already sort of bought and sold yeah. by a whole other group of people. Um yeah which is fine, which is fine. We can still use it. It's like, I, I am conflicted about the word permaculture too, but that's, that's a different conversation. Yeah. Um, I feel like if we ask ourselves, what are we really trying to get at? I mean, we could redefine wealth and, and, and do that. We really want well-being. Mm -hmm. We want well-being for people, for communities, for the ecosystems in which we are embedded. Mm -hmm. We want it over time in a multi-generational way. We want it in a resilient but flexible and adaptive way. Mm -hmm. So I have to say, I've been very encouraged by a growing drumbeat of discourse uh, in like the social impact sector nonprofit sector, a lot of sectors around elevating this idea of well-being. Yes. Yeah. Um, you can certainly bring in themes of wealth, but like I'm thinking of there's something called the well-being blueprint uh, that's been propagated by um, some folks I really respect. They're in Greenfield, Massachusetts, the Full Frame Institute. Hmm. I would take a look at that. Um, it's like start with what really matters to people. Um, and you could even build on that to take the vantage point of non-human stakeholders as well. Mm -hmm. uh, in, but, but what does it mean to define well-being over time in those ways? Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it depends who you're engaging with. And as a communicator, professional communications person, like there are some rooms where you have to talk about wealth. You have to frame it around wealth. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but like back of the house, that word, I, I'm struggling to even use that word anymore. Yeah. Um, although I will use it to say that, um, there is a racial wealth gap, for example, mm -hmm. and we know why we have a racial wealth gap and yeah. 
we really actually need to get the strategies and policies in place to start turning that around more aggressively. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's speaking to historically where we have been and how we talk about wealth in mainstream society. But, but if we're really future scouting, maybe we, maybe we could reframe that as well as a well-being Mm -hmm. strategy rather than a wealth strategy, you know, that might be greener, kinder, more eco. Just, just that's what's coming to mind for me. Um, It's like, what are we really, really talking about? Yeah. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah, it's it's much more inclusive and holistic well being. Mm-hmm. And, so and you're not just like trying to re, you're not like remixing capitalist jargon. Right, right. Because that word is kind of toxic. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, maybe. And 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 I know there's lots of instances socially where the best thing you can do is take a word and give it a new life and take it away from its toxic origin. So maybe that's possible too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I can't resist returning to your comment about what what is it that conflicts you about the term permaculture? I'd love to, if you'd share a a little on that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Since it's the permaculture podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Dig into the keyword for a minute. No, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think um, it's not that the tools and the practices and the design approach are, are in, have inherent problems. Um, it's stuff that I think we've talked about before that permaculture, if it did have a brand, it would have a PR problem hmm. um, in hmm. some circles. Yeah. Um, and because there's no central authority, nor should there be, uh, it's hard to sort of cohesively bring people that use the term and the tools of permaculture along to reframing that in um, in a consistent way. And what I mean by a PR problem is the, the things you probably already know, that there are some practitioners in the world uh, who are essentially just replicating the capitalist model um, mm-hmm. in, you know, in a way, yeah. including the looting of indigenous practices and rebranding them as white people practices. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure you, Andrew, and probably David, and it, when I was teaching, we really tried to shine the light of transparency and honesty on that mm-hmm. and name that that you know that that's a real thing and we yeah that that's a thing and we're trying to turn that around um and be in solidarity with indigenous people and people of color and name that yes these practices in some cases were lifted and consolidated and renamed and called other things and packaged and marketed in a particular way that did not honor the origins of those things and like, how do we get back to being in right relationship with the origins of some of those practices? Mm-hmm. So, so it's not that like what I taught in a permaculture design course is bad. It's that in the broader world, there are some practices that are not honoring of that, um, mm-hmm. are not humble about that, are replicating 
some of the practices that got us in this mess to begin with. So it's, it's, it's just something I want to be aware of that there are a lot of folks that I have um, a lot of solidarity with who, as soon as they hear the word permaculture, they're out, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so I, you know, I don't need to use the word. We can call it Fred for all I care. Um, <laughs> it's like, how do we how do we do this in a way that we're in right relationship and and yeah. we practice the solid values and ethics uh, of where this all came from? So yeah, that's yeah. So it's not like a Thank it's you. not like a diss on you know teaching people how to design a garden. It's just you know it's a it's there's some issues there. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. There's there's a wide gamut of affiliations that you're making just by virtue of using that term to potentially describe the work you do or the yeah yeah Yeah. and in any field there will be ethical practitioners and possibly non-ethical practitioners Mm -hmm. and you know so I think on the other hand if someone says oh I hate permaculture permaculture is terrible it's you know I still have the heart of permaculture in mind when I say, well, you can't really say that because that's like saying, oh, I hate architecture. Architecture is terrible. Well, there's good <laughs> architecture and there's bad architecture. Yeah. And, you know, so I think that can be true about any field. So it's just yeah. there there are some some, yeah, some reputational and practical problems in some ways with permaculture. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I was teaching to my uh, seventh and eighth graders at June's Montessori School. I was saying we could just call this good design, and we could call what we're nested in the midst of right now bad design. And what mm-hmm. we're going to learn how to do is good design. Mm-hmm. I do think sometimes unpacking from the descriptors and it's just down to something that we can connect on mm-hmm. communication wise with whoever we're in a conversation with yeah rather than need to be particular about our terms can i tie that back to food real quick and i know we need Please. to wrap up but um no no That's you know great. in communications work and narrative and framing strategy we do a lot of thinking about um what are the right words to use? What's the right way to talk about a thing to create connection with the folks we want to engage with and work with? Um, not in a deceptive or manipulative way. That would be more like what the marketing and political campaigns do with the, with their messaging research or whatever. But so in, in the food world, when we were talking about how to reach more people to build a sustainable, resilient, and just food system that works for everyone, we learned that talking about good food and bad food was a big mistake. Mm -hmm. Because when we said bad food, people feel judged. Mm -hmm. And then you've lost them. You've broken trust or you've eliminated the chance to build a bridge, to build a relationship within which you can work together toward some common goal. So, So I find it super interesting, even when we talk about good design and bad design, you know, one of those kids is like, well, my dad designed that. You think that's bad? Do you think my dad's bad? <laughs> so it's like, it's, it, and I'm not judging you, Andrew, on this. Oh, no, no, it's great. Um, you're right on point. Totally. Yeah. There's I'm, value terms or they're, they're very slippery. Yeah. They're slippery. So, so how do we bring it back to the shared goal of well-being? What are mm-hmm. the design choices we make with our buildings, with our land use, 
with our ownership patterns mm-hmm. that increase human and ecological well-being. Right. And which ones diminish it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's so true. And I think we struggle with the term permaculture just because it feels like it has worldwide recognition. And so uh, are there other words that have that recognition that we can use or other phrases, Mm. you know, maybe we come up with those phrases. I mean, one of my favorite books is design with nature by Ian McCarg. And that was that word, that title says it all design with nature, just do it, you know? Yeah. 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 And, and, um, and I think we need to pay attention and listen to whose voice, you know, not just talk to ourselves about it, but talk to the people who are feeling like, yeah, permacultures stay away from that. Okay. Well, let's, let's get into that and understand like, what's the root of that. And yeah. there's some legitimate gripes. Like I would look at the great narrative work from a group called a growing culture. Hmm. Um, they, you, you know, they do like a narrative brief on understanding a lot of these food system terms or deep dives into the ethics. They may have even done one on permaculture a few couple of years back, hmm. but it's like, how do we reframe this for well-being and community connectivity and yeah. bridge building? We need to be bridging, not breaking. Right. So true. Yeah. And trust is at the heart of it. Like you said, yeah, it is. And, and, and we're in a system that wants us to distrust each other for a reason mm-hmm. so we have to really try to model the alternatives i guess amen super hard yes well thank you lisa really yeah. appreciate you taking the time to explore some of these philosophical and and necessary territories we need to be developing more thinking more exploration into this evolutionary direction that we're all moving in together and, and really appreciate you also being part of this listening series that we're putting together for David and Lisa DePiano and I to really hear from voices like yourself who can tell us things about what we need to be really considering as we continue with this particular endeavor of the permaculture living lands trust, which is also uh, part of what you're helping us to really refine and and um and expand our awareness of of where we can go with this and Mm -hmm. and things we need to keep in mind as we move these uh endeavors forward into the world Uh, it's my pleasure and i'm just so pleased to hear about the work that's happening and keep me posted if there's anything i can do to support just let me know thank you sounds great so grateful for you lisa be well Likewise. Take care. Take care, Lisa. Okay. Bye. Enjoy your sabbatical. I will. Thanks. Yeah. Don't work too hard. Okay. (laughs) You know me. (laughs) Yeah. This has been Permaculture Perspectives. Thanks for listening and look online for the links and follow them. That'll be in the footnotes to this edition of Permaculture Perspectives. Give us feedback and join us for our upcoming class. September 23rd online. Permaculture design certification like no one else does it.